So this one is very special because I will be the one being interviewed and this will be about the podcast. The interviewee will be Tiago, one of my best friends and introduced me to rationality, less wrong, the whole concept of an intelligence explosion while I was a teenager. With no further ado, I let talk to Hugo. He can now start interviewing me. Uh, okay. Uh, hi, Michael. Hi, everyone. I'll do my best to, to understand this uh, podcast with you. For my very first question, do you really think the world needs another podcast? I think, I think podcasts are targeted at general audiences. I don't know any podcast that is exactly about short AI timelines, which means AI that advances very rapidly. But if we don't have many years then before a singularity is listening to podcasts, uh, the best use of our time. Even if, even if there is no singularity now, this century, intelligence explosion might arise at some point before the end of the universe. So I think it's worth talking about it. No, no, for sure. But so uh, who are you, Mikael, and uh, what's your background? My background is mostly in uh, mathematics. Why I'm interested in intelligence is because I used to play the game of Go. I got very excited about it. I spent three years playing Go for all day long. I even went to Japan to play against professionals. I had Go teachers in France. And one of them was Fan Rui, the first professional to be beaten by AlphaGo. Lee Sedol was my favorite player because he was very aggressive. Remember when I was studying math and AlphaGo came around, everyone was like, oh, this is a funny game. Uh, for me, it was personal. <laughs> it was my entire life that was beaten by AI. That's when I started reading more about AI, neural networks, reading about Kurzweil, Singularity, Tim Urban. So wait, but why? From reading those, I kind of grasped the concept, but then I read Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. Then uh, I think in terms of background, I did a master's degree in AI. At the end of my degree, I actually went and worked in the Institute of Nick Bostrom about uh, human level AI. I realized that it's very hard to answer meaningful questions without having a, an expert knowledge about it. So I, I decided to be an expert in reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning is a subfield of deep learning about agents, which is very useful to think about human level AI. Right now I'm working on deep learning, computer vision, where uh, we identify uh, bone fractures in uh, medical images, so x-rays. My goal uh, in the future is to have humans that um, live together with AIs and not just like be left uh, behind. Oh, I, I hope you succeed so we can have uh, many more episodes of this podcast. So, uh, now go on to the most important question of this interview. What's, what's the name of your podcast and, uh, and why? So this, this podcast is called Superintelligence. No, it's not. It was supposed to be called this way, but now I've decided to call it the inside view instead. Back to your program. For me, it's the most one of the most useful concepts when we think about the future, because we don't really care about human level exactly. From Wikipedia, it says any intellect that greatly exceeds the cognitive performance of humans in virtually all domains of interest. I think but by that, in the book, it defines um, interest is what is economically relevant, a growth in GDP. Greatly exceeds, you can define it by one or two orders of, of magnitude. There is like another concept we could be talking about, which is AGI, so artificial general intelligence, which is very ill-defined. And when AI researchers are asked about that, they tend to have some negative emotions about it. And it's, it's only about AI. But super intelligence, it's about intelligence. So it could be humans and AI, brain-computer interfaces, brain uploads, could be many things, but it's just okay. the concept of having something 
smarter than us. Okay, I get it. And why did you choose uh, that name? Why not call the, it the AGI podcast? And I think it's very badly understood by the community. Superintelligence is pretty well defined. I had another discussion recently with an employee of OpenAI about artificial general intelligence, and he gave me a definition, which was general intelligence is when we can automate 50% of knowledge work. He thinks that AGI would happen way sooner than super intelligence, years before. So if it's a definition where we can say anything we want, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a very cool definition. And yeah. I think this one is more precise. I want to talk about the future where we're not the smartest species. That's the future I'm interested in. I'm not interested in a future where a bunch of AIs are uh, automating human work. That's like one or two years mm. ahead. I want to talk about four or five, ten years. Or perhaps more, because as you stated, they're quite pessimistic or optimistic, depending on how you see it. I tend to think about what could happen if everything went super well. If everything went smoothly, growth in compute, number of papers published, code, and dollars invested in AI continue the same. Mm. I think it's pretty legitimate to think that there will be some significant advances this decade or century. You seem to think that it might come sooner than many people expect. No? Um, uh, at least at least that. In some way, yes. And I think what happens now is that if you're an AI scientist at a big research lab, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, if you say the thing, superintelligence is coming soon, you're being uh, disrespected because as a company, it's bad to be seen as someone crazy. So a lot of people censor themselves. So I want to give those people a space to talk about it. The few people I've seen talk about general intelligence are uh, Max Hodak, so the CEO of Neuralink, CEO of OpenAI, so Sam Altman, uh, Elon Musk, Carmack, CTO of Oculus. He said something like, there's 1% chance AGI being already here, <laughs> uh, but like secretly. He can do that because he's respected by everyone. But but now let me nitpick because you, you we've talked about those terms before. He's speaking about AGI or he said AGI, so I don't I don't really know what he means by that. My best guess would be let's say automating fifty percent of human work. He says that there, there's less than one percent chance that is already here, but secretly. And what do you think? Um, it's a bit weird because I was asked recently what's the probability of having clones already. <laughs> <laughs> and you think about it, you're like, wait, if, if there are clones, then there is some tech, big tech technology that I don't know about. And, and people are very secret and we're living in the Truman Show, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, and they're like aliens. And so you need to put some probability on, on it. There can be also more plausibly like some clones in a lab in China or something like that. Sure, sure. Yes. But then you can define clones as like someone who looks like you or someone who will be atom by atom like you or someone who will share your genome. Could be like a bunch of stem cells for research uh, somewhere in a lab in China. If it's something that looks like you, I think we can do it, but it needs to like move, right? I, I believe a, a clone is just the uh, same genetic material. We've done it before for, for other animals, just for humans, not, uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, so I might have uh, misunderstood the question. <laughs> Where I was pointing at is if we take genome and it looks exactly like you, then it's AGI complete. There is this thing in computer science where we say NP complete for problems that are very hard to solve. Here by AGI complete, I mean problems that can only be solved by AGI, but still a bad definition because as I said, AGI is poorly defined, but it would require something like a human level intelligence sped up. You can do whatever a human can do, but with the speed of a computer, then you can go very fast. I would suppose that if we had a clone atom by atom, there would already be in something like super intelligent and that could reason faster than us about science. Having a secret lab doing <laughs> uh, AGI for me is the same about a secret lab having like atom by atom clone is something 
very weird, but you need to put some weight on it. And I think less than 1% is good. One in uh, a million, maybe it's too low. So yeah, between mm-hmm. those two. I, w- I would expect you'd say a high uh, number. If we talk about super intelligence, I think it's less than 1%. If we talk about our definition for AGI now, yeah, that's one. maybe more than 1%. So... Or close and, to uh, what about a uh, super intelligence in the next 10 years? I think it's pretty reasonable to expect something that can do human level tasks. And if we also made something like uh, writing code or AI research on a computer clock much faster than the human brain, when we reach those things, we reach super intelligence directly. The question is when we reach like <laughs> science, math. So either mm. there's like some big thing we don't know about math and only humans like flesh humans can uh, write equations and stuff. Or it's like plausible that we can do something with uh, scaling a large language model like GPT-5-6 plus some reinforcement learning, some agent decision problem thing. So language model plus decision in the world. So that's my, what we call inside view. That's how I feel personally when I see the results from OpenAI and when I see my Go teacher being beaten by AlphaGo. If I think about the outside view, which is what people say. So if I look without any feelings attached and <laughs> without my life being in danger, what evidence shows us Um, I think one report that is pretty uh, well uh, written is uh, by Agia Kotra on AI timelines. And she gives pretty good estimates Mm -hmm. and she explains why she gives those estimates. She gives distributions, uh, different hypotheses, and she averaged those hypotheses. And I think if I remember correctly, it's something like the average is something in 30 or 40 years. So I I would say my, my outside view is something more like 30 or 40 years. Uh, 50%. She talks about transformative AI in her paper is whenever humans are capable of creating an AI that can transform the economy, like industrial revolution. They have enough compute if they have the algorithms. I remember this paper, but it was a less uh, constraining definition um, than you have when you talk about uh, super intelligence. All these questions were uh, a build up uh, to the next one, Mm -hmm. which is uh, if those researchers and and you are are right about uh, AGI and that it's a more serious risk than um, than it is uh, commonly thought to be. Uh, why are you right? And uh, especially, and um, why is everyone else wrong? Multiple things happening. So there's, as I mentioned, censure. So people who are in the position to express themselves mm-hmm. uh, and have thought about it cannot say it publicly because if they say it publicly, they look like someone insane. There's also a bias. The more you work on AI research, the more you see how complex those problems are, see how hard it is to make something detect uh, objects in, in images. You struggle all day long to do those things. And then someone says, oh, it will be like human level in two years. The thing is people is a crazy person because most people who talk like that are not AI researchers. I, I was talking to some researcher at Stanford, he told me like, oh, it's, it's very funny to talk with you about those things because in my lab, nobody talks about those. We're too concerned about our research. We don't have enough time to talk about it. I don't think they're wrong. It's mostly an approach about science. When you do science, you want to prove that things will happen. There's no way to reason uh, as a scientist very precisely about those things. You need to be to make forecasts and, and extrapolation. And, and those are things that people don't like to do, extrapolate from curves. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Uh, we saw how hard it was to convince people of um, climate change, so... Exactly. Uh, this this one will be uh, worse. In that context, you laid out what do you hope to achieve with this podcast? So you talked about a, a place for people to be able to talk freely. Um, yeah. And uh, what do you think could uh, result from those conversations? Maybe people will talk more about it. So uh, I want to um, enable people outside of this podcast to talk freely about it. Okay. Uh, to reference, to have something to reference. So they can just like, instead of just saying, 
oh, I have some private information about some crazy guy. They can just say, well, look at this interview with this uh, established researcher, or here is this, some, disc some debate. You can see the pros and cons. Even think about a meta way, which is, as I said, the, the Stanford researcher wasn't even thinking about it because he was too busy working on research. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if, if, I talk, if I call him and we talk about it for two hours, maybe that's the only two hours he will have to think about this problem and maybe we'll shift his career. <laughs> so even mm -hmm. have people think alone by themselves about it, that's super important. But in the context of climate change, people talk about it all the time. There are many celebrities even uh, like Attenberg that's... Uh, specialize in talking about it and uh, it's a coordination problem, no, nothing changes. Do you think having a public discussion on this uh, topic will uh, be different? There's more that can be achieved by a conversation. The usefulness of some podcast or conversation is how much it can change people's views or uh, ways of seeing the world, which can lead to them taking actions that can change something. So the question is like, what are the actionable steps? What we can bring is uh, a useful framework and good arguments. If people are able to reason more clearly about the future, then they might decide to change it. I think if, if anyone thinks uh, enough about it, uh, maybe they want to like, maybe not have kids now. Even if we talk about automation and they realize that they might, their job might be automated in five years and they might change their career, right? Having some podcasts or YouTube videos, then it's easier for people to approach it. So th there's this YouTuber, Robert Miles, uh, mm -hmm. who talks about AGI, and this guy is has like 200K views. So there's like a lot of people watching his videos. I think it's very useful work, and I don't know how many people change their <laughs> careers out of, out of it, uh, but I did. So I, I started okay. off with re reading some vulgarization from Wait But Why, on AI and that's, I, I was studying in the engineering school mm -hmm. and I was not liking it at all. And when I read this blog, I left and went to Paris and started learning about AI. I think you can have a tremendous impact on people's life. For sure. Uh, the, the answer I would have given myself is like most of the podcasts I listen, uh, I, I listen because they are enjoyable and uh, I don't particularly change my mind. Uh, I don't learn things new that are useful, but uh, I like listening to them. Uh, I find them interesting and fascinating. And that's also a part of uh, why we have conversations and uh, why we listen to podcasts. I don't fully agree that it doesn't change your mind. So it it, it, see, it appears that it didn't, didn't change your mind on that particular mm -hmm. subject, but you did update on some evidence, right? So does uh, everything else. That's not why I listen to them. If you listen to someone talk for an hour, you talk to people like one hour, uh, maybe like four hours a day, you talk to people. Uh, that's still like 25% of your time is spent listening to some podcast. Uh, <laughs> and so it shifts mm -hmm. your brain in some way. So if you listen to one podcast a day for a few months, then you, you start like changing your opinion on, on things. Um, and even if it's not the purpose, then at the end of the day, you still like change your views somehow. I find as I get older, I change my views less and less. And I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I've changed, changed my mind on anything in the last uh, couple of years. So... Well, you're I think a I'm set then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, perhaps I am, yeah. And now for the, um, the final part uh, of this podcast, I'd like to talk about uh, what you do on, uh, on Twitter. And I saw you, you posted a cool question about uh, GPT-4. Uh, could you like very quickly explain what uh, uh, GPT-4 was, is, uh, or will be, uh, or might be? And uh, <laughs> what was the question and uh, what did you get out of it? 
Sure. So I asked what will GPT-4 be incapable of doing? And I got a bunch of answers. Maybe explain what uh, GPT is. GPT-2 was a model developed by OpenAI. You give it one sentence and it generates a paragraph. Then one year later, they, they did another model that could generate three or four paragraphs or one page of text using a prompt. This time, they used something 100 times bigger. It could solve not only text, but it could generate um, code to, to build web apps or poetry or translate. So a bunch of things you can do, it could do it if, if it was given the right examples at the beginning. My question is, given the limits of GPT-3 uh, from last year, imagine we have something new this year, let's say it's called GPT-4, uh, and something like 100 times bigger, uh, what it cannot possibly do. And um, most of the answers are like, do something useful, make sense, because they're just language models. I still think it's useful to challenge those ideas and think if, if we ask the right prompt, Can it do it, you know, with thousands of trillions, you know, of computer? I myself used um, GPT-2 for um, to write a few essays in uh, in college. Uh, in fact, I believe one of your most uh, successful tweets uh, was about that. I wanted to know, like, do you think we'd use GPT-4 for a PhD thesis? <laughs> oh, so, you, so, you, so you're trying to, you're thinking about starting a PhD now? <laughs> well, if I, I can automate it, yeah, yeah I'd sure. love to. Um, so the difference in text produced by GPT-2 and 3, as I said, is something like, It went from like one paragraph to something maybe like three to five paragraphs or one page. So if we want to move to one page to, I don't know, 200 pages, so 200 times bigger. Uh, so if we can, if, if we keep scaling three by three, uh, we need five iterations more. Three to four or five is something like uh, 200. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's every year and your PhD is in philosophy, you, ha you have five years and at the end you just uh, uh, send it to GPT-8. Yeah, okay. uh, And uh, yeah, you'll be fine. But then the problem is you'll have some plausible text that is coherent in the like 200 pages. If you, if you say something like, um, here is uh, some example of what a PhD uh, would look like. You give a paragraph or two paragraphs about some PhD-like academic text. Mm. So you understand what's like converting to PhD is. And then you can do yeah, it. But, that's that's, but, that's all uh, prompts programming. Mm. Then there's another level, which is Meta prompt programming. So prompt programming is what we do with GPT-3. We could expect that with GPT-4, we do another step ahead, which is asking for what inputs uh, would produce some outputs. Mm. So we can ask, let's say I want to write a thesis and I need to write an introduction. What would be a good prompt to give an introduction to the subject? And then it will give you the best prompt for his mm. model. And then you send, you give it the prompt and you're like, you're giving the prompt for introduction for, you know, first part. So maybe you need to write a plan and like one sentence for, for each part of the plan and tell him like what you think an introduction is, a conclusion is, and at the end it generates a PhD. I think it seems plausible that you could write something coherent and win a lot of time from, from just doing it. But you're not confident that uh, GPT will result in a super intelligence by itself? I think maybe somewhere in my mind, I believe that uh, intelligence needs to have some agency. If you want something to exceed the human intelligence in any reasonable way in terms of economic importance, it should be able to like just you know move this, this mouse around. In, in a way, it can. Well, it can. It can speak to us. <laughs> so give the, you uh, the, the problem is not in, in a loop it needs to like uh, predict few steps and, and want to plan ahead so mm -hmm. he, he can uh, make me move this mouse if it's if he wants me to use this mouse for something but what, what GPT-3 wants now 
is just say the most uh, plausible sentence. Oh, yeah, I think you're, you're right. But it could be a, like a part of a bigger intelligence. And there are many things to be done. Uh, I think the most essential ones are uh, perception. So mm -hmm. be able to understand uh, audio, video, uh, recognize expressions, language. And then there's like reasoning and planning. I think the biggest uh, criticism people have on GPT is that it's not able to reason at all. Um, so if we ask him, uh, if, I, if I take a rock and I throw it on the ground, where's the rock? And he says like, oh, the, 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 the rock is in your hand. Mm. So it doesn't have common sense. It cannot reason like a baby would or like a toddler could have common sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, like very close to the Moravex paradox. Counter-argument to those, to those people is that this doesn't say that it does nothing. So GPT does something. It's just mm -hmm. that doing uh, what Moravex paradox asks, walk in a bar and uh, take p uh, chess pieces and, and uh, move it around and do like human level things, like robotic things, it's actually super hard. And if we solve something like common sense, in, in my opinion, um, it will be very close to something that can do math and, you know, can do AI research <laughs> and, you know, the singularity or uh, superintelligence. A close claim to say, oh, GPT cannot even have common sense and say like, oh, GPT is not even superintelligence. For me, it's kind of the same claim. Uh, but yeah, there, there might be a way of like imagining that common sense is way easier than taking over the world. I think, uh, as you've said earlier, if you can accelerate many um, times, perhaps many thousands of times the average intelligence, uh, at the end you have, uh, well, uh, something very competent. Let's say common sense is just like you have physics understanding and you can predict where if the ball falls down and so on. It doesn't give you the tools we have, like the understanding of mathematics. If you try to explain a Godel's theorem to like a toddler, <laughs> you will have a hard time. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> depends on the toddler. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So uh, maybe there's like something in between, which is limit, understanding yeah. mathematics and planning and problems in computer science are not linear. If we invest uh, 1,000 times more speed on something, we might not get 1,000 times more science. Because problems are uh, maybe NP-complete or very hard to solve. So maybe you need exponential compute to solve, like, you know, the travelsman's problem where you need to uh, move on a graph yeah, and, the, and, and the put traveling a, your Amazon and you need to put the boxes everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's exponential. So, like, even if you're very fast, even if you have common sense, you still need to, like, fight this complexity. Perhaps uh, there's, yeah, there's a quality to intelligence and that would mean that... Uh... Higher intelligence is not equivalent to um, lower intelligence uh, accelerated. And another point I think people might think of is that uh, we're not one agent uh, in terms of we're humans connected. We have, you know, cameras, uh, social media, telephones. If an AI comes along, it's not about an AI being smarter than a human. It's like an AI being smarter than everyone else. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe this claim is even higher. It's like, if you want to outsmart the entire world, you know, take over or something, then maybe you need a bit more than you, common sense or like understanding math. You need something higher. Um, uh, well, uh, I would assume that the, the intelligence would uh, not be adversarial from the start. So it would cooperate and use the infrastructure we have to its advantage. Sure, sure. So, at least so yeah, 
So it needs to have the first kind of common sense and planning to be able to understand how humans work and understand how to lie and send the software, like copy paste the software on all uh, Amazon uh, servers so you can like survive forever. But in, in some sense, also the big disagreement here is between something called the treacherous turn, where it will like copy paste the software everywhere after cooperating for a while. And the view uh, from Ben Gozel uh, called sordid stumble, uh, which is uh, the moment a toddler becomes very angry and starts fighting his parents is very small. You know, it will stumble. So whenever we see an AI becoming malicious, we, we will obviously see it. Uh, so the, oh, okay. the first lies, uh, we, we will manage to like uh, turn it off. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, the treacherous yeah, turn was a, a, ter a term coined by Bostrom in his book, Superintelligence. It's not clear to me which of these viewers is true, but it seems that lying and planning is pretty hard to do. So whenever it reaches a level when it can lie and plan that way, two steps ahead, cooperate for 10 weeks, and then in 10 weeks, copy-paste. <laughs> if you can do that, then humans would already know it's pretty smart. <laughs> in the case of treacherous turn, on top of cooperating, it will not show how smart it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah It will pretend to be stupid or at least the same level. And he might uh, on his own, you know, learn more about the world and become smarter and do stuff in the background. And so in, in uh, appearance, it might be the same level or growing slowly. But in reality, it will be going super fast. <laughs> so yeah, that's another thing uh, in this scenario, which is um, pretty pretty hard to to plan. All of this is uh, hard to plan. Um, uh, I think, uh, like we're approaching, well, we've, we've done slightly more than an hour. I think it's a good length for this podcast. Uh, I think it was successful. Um, Great. Yeah. <laughs> See you. Mm-hmm. <laughs>